This is the Girly Men Podcast. My name is Mike Gurley, and I'm the host and founder of girlymen.com, a site for gay men and anyone self-identified as the other, designed to help you invest in your own dignity, strengthen your connection with your chosen families, and thrive in general society. Now that you've found us, please hit that subscribe button. It was exciting thinking about interviewing Jay Rodriguez because I'd seen him on Queer Eye. And then I realized I'd seen him perform in one of my favorite musicals ever, Xana Don't. So I was a bit starstruck. I don't like admitting that, but I was. Uh, Then the real magic happened when we spoke. One gay man talking to another. Jay is approachable and tells us how it really is for queer people in Hollywood, how COVID-19 is affecting his sex life, growing up evangelical, and being a mentor. This high-energy interview that moves very fast is ready for you now, so buckle your seatbelts, boys. This man is going to tell you what's really going on. The moment you realized you were a gay man, you were forced onto the path of the other. So you know oppression, inside and out. The calling of otherness has led you on your own hero's journey, and that journey has prepared you for greatness. You are a man answering the call to brotherhood, to conscious sex, and to heart-centered connection. Welcome home, brother. Well, welcome, Jay. Jade Rodriguez, thank you for being on the Girly Man podcast. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, been, it's a pleasure. And first of all, what lovely surroundings you have there. <laughs> thank you. This is the corner of the condo um, made into a, it was impossible for anything else. It was this little weird triangle. It's a great mm-hmm. sound booth. You know, I hear a lot of people are back in the closet uh, with podcasts and luckily. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a couple concerts from closets as well. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to be in one. Well, um, I like to start asking how you are, how you're feeling, because I think our feelings are, are really important. Yes, yeah, you know, yesterday, I think Monday it was, I posted that it's really been an emotional roller coaster. I'm feeling okay today. Um, I, I got up a little earlier. It's the normal household errands that I do in the morning, feed and walk the dog the whole bit. But just being unemployed, and uh, today I had several scheduled calls with managers and bookers, and just to kind of reevaluate where we are months into the pandemic as to what work will look like for me. What is happening? What are people saying about the future of the industry right now? Yeah, so Uh, it feels like, you know, a lot of companies are purchasing shows, understanding that once things are a bit safer to make programming, there's going to be in high demand. So there is work Mm. hopefully down the line that will be employing a lot of people in the industry. Now, I am an in front of the camera guy, but we talk about behind the scenes. I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of employees, middle-class families who, you know, survive gig to gig, whether you're talking about people who are grips or makeup or hair camera people. These are not millionaires. These are not people who, because they work in Hollywood, are part of the elite. And I also would like to mention that a lot of the performers you see on television shows are paid a one-time nominal fee of uh, what industry standard is considered. And I know that for the infrequency that a lot of your familiar faces work, they barely can make ends meet as it is. But the optics are that there's fame attached to them, so they must be financially stable. But I can attest to the fact that I've been speaking to many people, and and many of us aren't. We rely on so many sources of income. And when you talk about all Hollywood actors, you're really kind of honing in on maybe the one or 2% of the population who've done such epic projects that they don't ever need to work again. That's not the case for most performers. Well, let's talk about Queer Eye. Um, Why do you think it's 
uh, been such a, such a success. I mean, the way I remember TV history up before that, you know, we were getting roles or, or we were being portrayed here and there and, and whatnot. Then all of a sudden, we're the show. Yeah. <laughs> How did that yeah, happen? So I'll tell you, yeah, it was off the heels of Queer as Folk, L Word. Queer as Folk, L Word were a scripted series, gay uh, content, already on the air, Will and Grace. So now you get the trifecta. Mm-hmm. proven and those will l word and queers folk were cable but nbc took a chance and did will and grace huge hit uh, so then the ellen degeneres talk show picks up and it becomes a huge hit so bravo which is a subsidiary of nbc had this little show that they were taking a chance with nothing really was on bravo other than inside the actor's studio that rated well that was it this was pre-housewives trust me in that era no one knew what a vanderpump was to me <laughs> A Vanderpump was a thing I would do late at night before bed to James Vanderbeek. So <laughs> for me, I just instantly, I kind of got the sense that that era and that time was going to be an explosion of visibility for gay scripted content. And I was starring in, in Xana Don't, this off-Broadway cult classic. I have my name above the title, billboards all over town, including Times Square above the Virgin Mega Store with my little magical wand in my face. It was a big deal for me. It was really, and that was like 23 years old, right? Mm. So it was such a massive thing. And so when we got this show, we didn't think it'd be anything. All of us had plans to go back to our normal lives right after. No one quit their jobs. So, you know, we're all supposed to go back to work. And then two weeks in, it just be, we just got noticed that it like tripled the ratings in Bravo's history. They were going to put us right after Will and Grace to see how we did. We held their ratings and increased it. So it was a lot of this big magnitude. And during that time, we weren't playing characters. We're being ourselves. Yeah. which was career suicide, people were telling me. And I will actually go on record and say that in some ways, it kind of was for me. You know, uh, my first play at Lincoln Center was a play called Spinning Into Butter that dealt with racism on a college campus. My character was straight. He was a college student that had been wronged by the dean of students. And it was this great play. Spike Lee was at opening night and I played this inner city kid. Those roles never came my way after that because people were like, oh, he's gay. And I just saw him on this series on Bravo where everyone's all caffeinated up or, you know, you know, do, shooting the show with a light buzz if it was the loft. You know, so for us, I think we thought we were just making a makeover show. But what the cultural impact or significance, I don't think we were aware of in the moment, which was for the first time, the world got to see queer men that they might not have had access to in their normal day-to-day lives. And they invited them over and not just over anywhere, into their bedrooms, and their kitchens, their living rooms, wherever their TVs were. And TVs are a much more intimate form of media versus the movie theaters. If you see a TV star and it's not scripted, you feel like you know them, they're your friends. And suddenly we couldn't go anywhere without anyone, you know, wanting to say things to us. Years later, 17 years exactly, we started production on the show, May 2003. I don't think any of us knew what we were getting into. And at that time, the big deal was you have to be out and gay. And I remember my agent saying, are you ready to make that kind of commitment? And I did because honestly, I was like, no one's going to watch it. I thought no one would ever see it. It was on a little <laughs> station that again, no one was really, it wasn't on the tip of everyone's tongue like it is now, Bravo TV. And I think the trickiest part for me was coming onto the show in the, in the category of culture. They had a pilot guy in that role. He was not asked to move forward when the show was bought by Bravo finally and found a home. Then they hired another guy named Blair who did culture for two episodes. He was fired and replaced by me. And I was introduced to you on episode one and episodes two and three were of, well, how, how did that feel, that. knowing that the pre the previous two guys before you were fired? 
I think was it extra pressure? I, I knew it was slowly going to be turning into Queer Eye for the White Guy because it was mm. an entirely white cast with mostly an entirely white production staff. And so I knew that I wanted to, coming from Rent, a multi ethnic show for half a decade and having experiences of being, you know, brown and queer in entertainment, I was bringing something already different to the table. Also being a decade younger, a lot of the references that they had weren't references that I, that I knew of or cared about. And so taking a page of what they uh, knew and just kind of learning from my elders, but also teaching them about the things that were new was important to me. We don't have a whole lot of, what I like being now, and I like that there exists now a lot of elders, because my elders, the generation above me, didn't have any, because many of them were sadly taken away because of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, being a performer for half a decade and being very successful in that space, and then getting a reality show that diminishes you to being somewhat of an, a Puerto Rican Emily Post, and having SNL parody you and Mad TV parody you as wow. useless, as a useless force on the show, doesn't do a whole lot to instill confidence. And so I had to really remember that I was a performer. And sadly, I was asked repeatedly to tone that down because if I'm an actor, well, maybe all the other guys are acting as well. And so when you have that legacy moving forward, people seeing you as useless and not understanding what you're actually good at because the show didn't really elevate that in any way. Unlike the other guys, I've never got, unlike probably any queer eye guy, I never got a, a, like a, a six-figure, seven-figure endorsement deal like all my queer eye guys. And, mm. you know, let's, if we really want to talk about it, I think Billy Porter says it best. I grew up in the 90s revering Billy Porter as a Broadway star because I grew up listening to the soundtracks he was on. And then all of a sudden he had this massive gap of unemployment. And as he says it now, he was unhirable because he was Black and too femme presenting. And I think that when while I was having a great good old time and gaining it up for a Queer Eye, people were not anxious to hire me after because they didn't feel I was safe or the kind of gay that would be accepted. Times have yeah. certainly shifted, but many of us took massive hits to our career. And I'm, including, I'm not including the Queer Eye boys. I don't know their story. But I, I left Queer Eye in a very different financial situation than any of my other brothers. Well, uh, let's talk that about show. that for a second, because, you know, I think my parents meant well raising me, but in Nebraska, Wyoming, and Idaho, they were telling me where everybody was white. So there was nothing to like check this on. Um, they were telling us that there used to be a race problem, but we fixed it in the 60s and everything's good now. And I moved out here and I slowly realized that just wasn't true. So it, it's um, not, it wasn't. I grew up in a, in a Puerto Rican Italian household or people with my skin complexion on the Puerto Rican side, some even darker, who could pass for African-American. And my Puerto Rican family was the most racist out of any groupings I'd ever been a part of. And all the things that they had told me about people of color, which was so odd that they would have that kind of view, being that we literally looked like members of our family could pass for African-American and that there was such uh, ignorance and bias toward them. I was very, very shocked. With the time I started going to the first church my mother really set us up in, it was an evangelical church, and it, when we were the lightest skinned people there. And when I started to go to school, primary school and junior high, I started realizing that the tropes and all the kind of cliches they used to say about other races were just wildly inadequate. Um, mm. And so, and then obviously getting rent, working with a multi-ethnic cast, I was like, this is ridiculous. But all the, that ideology, all of it still is in play. In fact, I was on Twitter yesterday, and I think it was the UK Times or UK Gay Times put like 10 must-see movies, like 10 must-see LGBTQ films. Not one of them had any out LGBTQ people of color in leading roles. They had Six Feet Under, 
but the actor who played it was straight. You know, it was just this big whitewashing. And even if you're lucky or fortunate enough to get into an LGBTQ-themed TV series or a movie, you're never one or two on the call sheet. You're always three, four, or five, meaning you have the fourth, fifth, or sixth largest role in the film or project. And there aren't many projects out there that really speak to the experience of, of some of us who moved here. When I moved here from New York, I remember going to here lounge and having some guy come up to me and we're dancing and he's like, you're pretty hot for a Latin guy. I mean, no, it's not, I'm not, it's just like, it's not, it's not my preference. And you're like, yeah. I, I hear what you think you mean by it, but you don't. Anyway, so I think race plays a very integral role in our society in terms of us acknowledging the differences that exist when it comes to privilege. Um, yeah. And I think it's not about shaming people. It's just uh, enlightening them to other people's experience so that we can be more compassionate and take care of each other the way we should. Yeah, and I've had a journey myself. You know, I'm a big, tall, white guy. And just experiencing all kinds of privilege, I didn't have a clue I was sure. enjoying. But how and, could you, unless unless you saw it firsthand, it was a family friend or a really close person to you. Yeah. I think, you know, you can only hear so much that people tell you. And when it becomes personal to you, then I, th I think that was part of Harvey Milk's messaging, come out, come out, come out. He wanted as many people to be visible as possible so that we could say, hey, I'm not just, you know, your cousin. I'm also a gay man, like the thing that you say you hate, you know, or whatever the case. Yeah. Well, for me, I think it was uh, Larissa Fuchs. Hey, Larissa. Um, we <laughs> worked next to each other for uh, about 15 of the 23 years I worked at West Hollywood City Hall. Mm -hmm. And she saw the young me, I'm so embarrassed now, you know, talking about, oh, the world's fair, the world's perfect. And she's like, what world do you live in? And she's like one of the three people I wanted at my retirement party, you know, oh. later, 23 years later. And just to see, just to seeing the slight, just as it happens in real time, real slights, real passes, real people living in a world of non-privilege. And but here's the other thing too, if you look at our media, that you know, the, many of these websites that we follow for the LGBTQ plus community do not do features or oftentimes not on their cover, have people of cover. It's rare, exceptionally rare. And so when I look at sometimes in an Instagram account to an LGBTQ plus population, it's a sea of really gorgeous, like ripped white guys and not a whole lot of diversity. And they'll put a body positive image, you know, I'm like, you're literally, the body positive image is the majority of people who live and socialize in the city. The, you know, smaller percentage- When you say body positive, what are you saying? When they, the people they who use, don't live in so Los yeah, Angeles. So coded, so coded language for body positivity is when someone is outside of shape and then they just say to them, oh, they're so body positive. Meaning, oh, they're not ripped or they don't have the Equinox body, so they're body positive. I'm like, well- you don't know that they might actually be quite negative about their body and they should be body positive, but we all should be looking at things in a different way. Great example. The kid from Twilight is now playing the new Batman. I forget his name. The Kristen Stewart's ex. And he made an announcement that he doesn't want to work out for the role. Because he's like, wow. I don't understand. I don't understand why Batman has to be super ripped. These guys go to the gym for four months, six months prior to these shoots, do everything legal and illegal to chain these bodies mm. for a short blip of time. And I just think it sends the wrong message. And I kind of stand for that. Here's why. I want him physically capable to do all these things. But the truth is, people who strength is not always about having 0% body fat and being on all the... It's just not. 
Yeah. Um, and so I think the way that this comes back to my greater point, if you look at our community, we only elevate certain types of queer folks. And that is, you know, trans people have this conversation a lot. It's like the cis passing uh, trans folks sometimes get more more visibility than their non-passing uh. brothers and sisters or non-passing family. Then if you look at the gay community, I remember hosting a night one time in West Hollywood and I was the host. It was my night. And they're like, we're going to put a stock image of this model. And it was a white model. Wow. And they were like, well, because we don't want people to think it's Latin night. And I was like, I, I don't even know what that means. Does that mean that we can never have a person of color on an ad because it's indicative of what you think their music that person represents? So it was just really tricky, yeah. I think, when I got first got here. But the issue of race is far from over. I watched a great conversation with Bob the Drag Queen and Peppermint where they talk about the fandom and how racist the, the fandom of the, of the drag race world can be. But it's just a small microcosm of everything else so yeah i would assume that the world of drag is just as diverse as the lesbian world or the gay world or the <laughs> people are shocked though people are shocked they're like wait a minute straight people are like wait there's like you could be racist and lgbt i'm like yeah girl <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah yeah big time well while we're on it can you talk about playing a gender fluid role like yeah. angel and yeah um and an actual trans um i definitely want to dive into this and i'm so glad for you to have brought this up because it's not something that i talk about enough of and i and i really like it so when i got rent i knew the show when i saw i didn't quite understand the angel thing i'd never seen a drag queen i knew of rupaul everyone did from the you better work but i didn't know to be honest, what parts she had, if she had transitioned. I didn't know as a teenager what drag meant. Then I get the show and they're fitting me up and I'm, we're not tucking, we're not using any padding for breasts or hips or, and you know, they would have me shave and use powder, press powder on my face. You can kind of see my beard up close. They're like, ah, it's stage, who cares? And then as it was taught to me, you know, I was an actor, but didn't know much about queer culture or a drag queen. And I kept playing the character as female, like as, oh, a, uh, as a cisgender biological female angel. How old and were you? 18. And the director was like, I'm sending you home with some homework. I had to watch Tu Wong Fu, Paris is Burning, uh, learn the difference between drag queens and trans women. And he kept saying, Jay, boy in a dress, boy in a dress. Your voice should always be the same if you're in and out of drag, which I had, you know, a young gay boy voice anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, so for me, I, I don't see Angel as a trans character because, you know, she lived her life as a man and, and would perform in the art form of drag and based on the costuming and everything else. And that era that I was alive for and participated in, I saw Angel as more of a street performer, drag queen. That's my feeling based on everything I know and was taught by the original creative team. Then you move forward to I'm in LA and because I did rent every drag roles now at my feet. And I turned on a couple because they were poor depictions of, of drag culture. And then I got a, an opportunity to audition for David E. Kelly, who wrote, obviously, Ally McBeal, Boston Legal, you name it, just big hit show. And it was starring Kathy Bates. It was called Harry's Law. It's about a woman named Harriet who opens up a law firm. She's in hard times. She needs a rental space. So she's basically working out of a shoe store. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's like a shoe store slash law office. And the character uh, was that of a trans woman, but it wasn't written that way. In the actual audition, the, the sheet they sent to, to agents and stuff, it said, we are not seeing trans performers, nor are we seeing professional drag queens. They kept referencing Madam Butterfly, um, which I thought was an interesting reference. So then I booked this role. I only did this, and this is about over, um, probably about 10 years ago, a decade ago. I, today, would never, ever audition for any trans characters. There's enough, over enough 
trans actors that should be allowed because they previously were not to tell their own mm. stories. And so I don't ever need to perform as a trans person unless the character begins as a cisgendered man and has this whole transitional journey. But even then, I prefer them to see trans people first. But I took this role because I'd seen trans people and drag queens depicted so inaccurately on camera and having grew up around so many great trans people uh, when I graduated college and I graduated high school and started Rent that I wanted to make sure their story was told accurately. And that's the only reason I took it a decade ago. And I was given a lot of freedoms, but also I recognized how much confusion there was on set. The hair designer thought it was a drag queen. The makeup person understood that she was trans, that she lived as a woman and she had trans friends. The wardrobe department understood that she was trans and that she lives as a woman. I believe the show was took place in Cincinnati and having to have that conversation was really tricky to get everyone into alignment. The word trans was never used. Wow. And um, she, just, like, she just referenced living as a woman. And, and she says, you know, retreating into her stage persona is more than an escape, it's home. And I remember, you know, when that episode aired, when you'd click on the info, like let's say it was airing tonight and you wanted to DVR yeah. it, and you click on the info, it said uh, Jay Rodriguez guest stars as Amanda Knott, a drag performer, uh, blah, 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 this transsexual, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, whoa, the wow. language is so wrong. All, so thankfully I called Glad. Um, which tackles our representation in media. And I got to speak to someone who literally was like, I just had lunch with the good folks over at NBC. So they know me very well. And we were talking about these kinds of issues. Let me point this out. And they corrected it within two hours. So um, yeah, I've always been an advocate for the trans community. Um, Having had so many trans women sort of raise me as as mother figures in my 20s and, and even today, that it was unfortunate and a travesty that they could not even be seen for these roles. But thankfully, due to Courageous Networks and Trailblazers, you know, trans women are, trans performers of all, all kinds of gender identities are here to stay, and they should uh, be the ones to be up for these roles and tell their own stories, because there's still bias in the industry. Yeah, and I think it's so nuanced. And every individual represents differently, right? You were talking the difference yes. between Angel and this other role. And- yeah, because Angel was literally a drag queen that we see as boy a whole lot. And Amanda lives as a woman. You would never see her, you know, anything but. And, and we even use um, liquid latex on my face so that I never had a five o'clock shadow because it was meant to appear that I had gotten electrolysis, you know, and I, I could, they weren't even open to the, to the word trans because at that time it was not loosely thrown, thrown around as it is now. Trans at that time, you know, most heterosexuals saw it as transsexual. You know what I mean? Like a yeah. of a drag performer versus someone who is transgender who may have had some kind of uh, reassignments done to their to their body or you know altered their body in some way to align with how they felt on the inside to some people who just identify as trans or different gender who feel complete with no surgeries i'm really good friends with a girlfriend of mine who is from the philippines and she's an open transgender performer she was on the voice and she's never had any um anything she's very open about that she feels complete in her body she presents very cisgender passable female but she's a nurse by trade as well and so she does not at this moment in her life feel inclined to alter her body in any way but she is a woman Um, and so that's a very difficult topic 10 years ago to have people understand yeah i mean i'm long-winded well i i I thank you though i i want people to um hear about these things Uh, you and i 
are, are in it here in West Hollywood and California. You know, I'm going to Branson maybe um, in July <laughs> to visit my family. And they wouldn't know any of these things, cis, trans, you know, the difference between a drag queen and a trans woman. These are things that are important. The gender identity thing always trips me up because I always, not in terms of I mess it up, but I just think it's an interesting conversation to start with people who feel anti-trans. And I always wonder, and they're like, well, I just want to know what gender they are. I was like, why, yeah. <laughs> why, is it, why is it important for you to know what what organs they have downstairs or what they look like? Why is that of, how does that impact your life? And if you need to know their gender, does that mean you will now treat them differently? If it's mm. a man, you'll be frightened of, of this person and you will feel like they're uh, a danger to you. And if, if, if it's in your mind, you believe this person to be a woman, then you can speak down to her, pay her less. Where, where are we really getting at when we talk about what gender identity means to people who are frightened of trans folks? What are they really trying to say? I don't well, understand how gender plays into like anything. As long as someone's a good person, you know what I mean? I don't, I, I don't understand why you would have any... Yeah, well, people are really difficult with gray, right? You know, people want want one thing or the on or off, black or white, like by people. I was one of those people like saying, make up your mind, make up your mind. Um, until, you know, recently, last year I had it, I went to this great training, it was the Mankind Project. And it's mostly a straight organization where you do, you know, men's work and get in touch with your feelings. I really love it. It's very helpful. God, it's been so long since I've done any men's work. Oh wow! Well, this was amazing, and and I, I mean, got... like men's work. <laughs> men's work, not work on that. Yeah. Okay. okay, yeah. Um, I know it's it, right. I'm lucky to have a boyfriend. Um, yeah. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about COVID boyfriend negotiating because I think that's Ooh, yeah. that's really needs to be a thing now. Mm-hmm. You know, my uh, best friend and business partner is single, and this is really tough for him you know and i'm just like you need to find something that's just i mean go through your list who are your regular hookups and maybe you find one and make an agreement or something Um, i think i think unfortunately because the lockdown being as long as it's likely going to be before we have um any kind of open release where we're allowed to socialize in that way again hookup culture has to adjust and follow suit with that but i would be lying if i didn't say that even as early as last night i had someone who uh, i've never hooked up with but has wanted to hook up with me so they had rented a hotel room and they was having a couple people over for a sex party and i was like first of all a i'm very flattered that you think i'd even go to a sex party so good on you for taking a chance there but b I think there is an overall kind of invincibility that some gay people are feeling toward this, especially those who didn't grow up around a pre-prep era. And what I mean by that is many of us remember what it was like to live through a time in HIV where you never knew who was positive and if you know you'd start dating you'd use condoms and you'd go see a physician together and then you know if you both tested negative this is what they would tell you and then you would basically just do the honor system like I'll never cheat on you you won't cheat on me and you know it was just a very tricky system or some people were like listen you know it was before the science came out that let us know that you equals you you know which thank god we have that now and people should really embrace that you mean undetectable means untransmittable that's right that's right which means if you have such a low viral load of HIV HIV in your body that they can't even detect yep. it in a lab. And I it's- was undetectable for eight years before they said that. <laughs> 
damn it. We all should have been having sex with you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway. Yeah, no, I get that. I think that's a that's a thing. And I think, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a COVID stigma. There's going to be a lot of people who will fall into the same traps. And by traps, I mean, I have a couple of friends who were too, I'm going to say prudish to get on prep because they believed prep mm. was something for whores and sluts, their words. Yeah. Like, like the birth happened, control my mom takes. That's right. And the two of them <laughs> that said that and shamed me for having even the discussion about prep wow. ended up testing positive for using the honor system of what I just, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who we're both not at all about that hookup life. It's not what it's about. So as people start to navigate this COVID land. Yeah, it's science. It's not morality. You yeah, know, you do it's... have to understand that you will be taking a risk for every person this person comes into contact with, um, you know, that they are exposing themselves and ultimately you. Uh, and you have to to figure out those risks and what makes sense for you. For me, yeah, like I'm always more emotional emotionally uh, my uh, arousal is linked to emotions so i want to have some kind of connection even if it's mm-hmm. a friends with benefits situation mm-hmm. um but i'm not in a place right now where i think any of my friends with benefits i had previously would want to just lock it down and just be with me so then you have to then you're increasing your numbers exponentially because even if oh, they yeah. hook up with like three people and those people each three hook up with three people now you're basically having a massive orgy every time you hook up and yeah. I just, I don't know where I'm at with that. I mean, you know, I have this joke. I'm like, I just need a quarantine boyfriend. We get to know each other digitally for a while, see how things go, and then decide to unquarantine together, you know, while we get through this pandemic. But I'm not inclined to be as liberal sexually as I probably would have been pre-COVID, only for the fact that I've had people very close to me have had really bad experiences with COVID. The other piece about that too is, as many people are, that are going to be overly cautious, cautious and not cautious at all, there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to be reimagining ways of what safety looks like to them. And so it is going to be about, look, I just got, hopefully testing will be a little easier. So it's not like uh, I scheduled an appointment, it's in a, six weeks from now, and then I'll know that I'm good for two, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, so hope, if, it's, if testing's a little easier, I think it'll streamline our ability to connect with others in a way that feels safe. My only issue is, and I'm very sex positive, my only issue becomes I am unemployed. Could I, the minute this opens up and we have access to be able to work, really take a hit and be down for the count for five weeks? I don't think I can. My best friend is 35, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. And has been going through this for five weeks until he felt some semblance of normal, was in the ER twice. So I, I do all the things. I'm like, I, that's not going to hit me well. I'm you know, going to be 41 in a month. So it's like, for me, I, I don't want to take chances because even if I live, uh, if, I, if I happen to be lucky enough to be part of the 99% of people or whatever the figure is that does okay, okay is pretty relative. And I just wouldn't want to be, you know, inhibiting my ability to get back on my feet and you know get back into the workforce because opportunities it's not like a nine-to-five job i can't just be like oh thank you for the offer of that role can you postpone production of just my scenes because i got a little i got scotia the covid you know that's not gonna work but trust me that is not to say that i am any less horny than anyone else because if anything it's like the hormones are raging even more because we can't hook up you know what i mean like and that's the real real about that it's it's really tough. You grew up in a conservative evangelical home. What was that like? I think 
that growing up in a, a really insular home, um, single parent, my grandmother raised me and my mother basically as siblings. My mom had me young and I feel it didn't change much for her when she had me. She just kind of went back to being a you know 20 some odd year old partying with her friends. And, and I guess unbeknownst to her, I just kind of more bonded with my grandmother and she became the mother figure to both of us. Uh. And we grew up in my mother's childhood home. So nothing really changed. And, um, when I was like 12, we moved in together to our first place. And that's when my mom instilled religion. And it started very evangelical. Um, and then it kind of lightened up to one of those mega churches that were a little more cool and hip. And what I learned as a teenager was that my mom was very immature and that her development as a, as a grown-up had really stopped. When things appeared that she didn't know anything about, she would put her head in the sand and say, well, I don't know. As opposed to me, I instantly then wanted to find out the why. Well, we just, because they said, I don't know. They said, who's they? I don't know. I read it somewhere. That's not enough for me, never has been. But what it's given me is the compassion for the conservative point of view, specifically the religious one. I understand why they believe what they believe. And I certainly understand why some of them have been indoctrinated to believe some of the hate that they believe about certain groups of folks. And I think well, that's, really, that's really big. I mean, I, I got to say, Jay, that's fascinating. I, I feel the same way. I, you know, I was raised Mormon and people look at me cross-eyed when I say, what you're saying is like, I can understand them. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I listen, because if it's all, you know, for instance, I want to just, just lay this out. No TV nor secular music was allowed in the house. I was not allowed to watch secular TV or movies, music. So if all you know is what you're being taught at church or via your family, that's all you know. You don't have exposure to anything else in the outside world. And when you don't leave your community or you surround yourself with people who are only like you, you don't really have a broader understanding of what the world is at large. And if I could add to that point, I would say if God created everything, isn't getting to know everything getting to know God? You oh, know, wow. if this is if I am a piece of God's personality, if I am the essence of what God created, if even if we want to take people out of the situation if if seeing a different part of the world and the way they live christians there live let's use christians as an example uh and the differences in culture that's still god what do you think there's gonna be separate heavens for different folks you know what i mean like if you believe in that so yeah. i think it starts there about having the compassion for i know why you believe what you believe i understand why this is important and vital and it's not just the religious aspect, but the religious becomes like an institution of culture. Um, mm -hmm. It's all people know. It's it's a way of living outside of just the religious aspect of it. Well, let me put you on the spot for a second and say, what's your personal God concept? I, I have to tell you, I've really, I've really leaned into watching a lot of documentaries ever since Netflix uh, came to be a thing and about all religions. I'm fascinated by them. I'm fascinated by how many of them have so much crossover of some of the same stories. Yeah, The same core principles tend to be be a good freaking person and and to love one another and be kind and so of course you have extremist groups that take things too too far but i don't think i can subscribe to any one religion because growing up in the behind the scenes of the church i saw a lot of indiscretions that were swept under the rug and i remember one time there was an accusation made against me that i had done something with a boy yeah. when i knew i hadn't and the boy had lied and said that that i had solicited him in some kind of way for some kind of sex act and i know for a fact i hadn't and my mother knew interestingly enough that i hadn't um because when he said that it all happened i was at home with my mother and he thought i was out with my then girlfriend so he thought he could use that when we went to approach the pastors about this they didn't believe me 
Wow. They said they had prayed on it and God had spoken to them that this had happened. And in that instant, I literally was like, you don't know God then. Like you literally, you're literally not believing truth. So that leads me to believe that God doesn't exist the mm. way you say it does. Or your relationship or your direct communication is filtered through your own bias. Yeah, I, I had yeah. that kind of, I didn't have that specific kind of thing. But at one point I was like, God either is what they say, all knowing and and loving, or he's something else, this this weird, hateful, controlling thing that, you know, is all wrapped up in our local government. And I, I don't think God cares that much about the local government. And I had to decide, I'm going to go with the God that knows everything. And deep down, I know I'm awesome. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to p- take it between me and God. <laughs> yeah. This is a conversation between me and God. You people no longer need to be involved. Yeah, honestly, I, I agree with that. And let's not forget that, you know, the churches are a tax-free business as well for them to stay in business. They, they can't have empty you know, seats. And so I remember one of the things I was taught was they will know we are Christians by our love. Haven't really ever stopped someone and said, Hey, you're so loving. What's the secret to your happiness? It's never, it's never been, Oh, I'm a Christian. Um, (laughs) And it should be, it should be. But in this modern age, I've never, I've never seen someone be so kind unto others or filled with so much joy and love that I was taken aback and had to ask them the source of that. And they said, Christ never had that happen. And I've worked with many Christians, devout ones, you know? Yeah. Well, out here, it seems to be coming. It, it, well, it seems to come from like yoga and Hindu and Buddhist stuff. I mean, that's where I'm constantly hearing love, 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 love yourself exactly the way you are right now, queen. And there's so much, there's so many, so many of the same practices labeled different things, whether it's prayer and meditation um, that if you say meditation in the wrong way around Christians, they're like, that's ungodly. That's you, you're, you're worshiping like spiritual, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, and it, and, and there's so many practices that we physicalize in our bodies that that take us to this kind of really Zen place or a place of enlightenment that the physical feeling of it is so universally felt, but there's different yeah. practices that get people feeling that feeling and they all have labeled them different things. It's literally just like the mind body connection. And when they start aligning those things, they're like, it's God and I'm going to name it this, you know? So I, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I really don't know. I, I do believe that there's something greater than us, even if it's just the collective us being sort of this united spirit of energy. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I do believe in energy. I'm, I'm kind of open to be honest. Yeah, that's great. That's a great place to be. Since we're in that realm now, what you're 41, what advice would you give to your I'm not 16? 41 yet, June oh, yeah. 2nd, please. <laughs> I'm but a child. <laughs> I know, I know. You're, you're practically a baby. Um, yeah. yeah, oh, you're a full-on adult. It's it's on you. You're doing the heavy lifting. You're in charge. How does that feel? I know. Yeah. I mean, that does track with my sexuality, but carry on. Okay, good. Oh, well, then that goes, that's perfect. So what advice would do you have for your 16-year-old self or just some I think I would have been, I, I think I would have been, that was the age a lot of things happened. My aunt um, died of AIDS-related complications. She had 2.5 kids, the house, the car, the boats. Shouldn't have happened to her. And I saw the discrimination. I remember taking her to the dentist and the dentist putting on four pairs of gloves and she turned her face to wipe a tear. I remember, you know, that time in my life also being the time where someone tried to call me out as gay in church and make a big spectacle about it. And I remember being so wildly afraid of standing up for myself. Remember when I was 15, Mr. Eastman, Smithtown High School, social studies, we had an HIV AIDS like informational thing in the, in the auditorium and he would not let us go. And he said, if you're an IV drug user 
or a gay man, then you can go. And then there was like an audible, like kind of gasp in the room. And he was like, what? If you're a gay man and you stick your penis in another man's butt, get up and leave. Other than that, we're continuing this lesson. And so I wish wow. that there were moments when I was 16 where everything really started coming to a head and would ultimately form who I was later to champion for myself and others. And I wish I would have been more vocal and trusted that it would have been okay. But I was such a rule follower and so indoctrinated by what I had learned at that church, which now in hindsight, elements of it felt very cult-like. So I probably would have try to find ways to reach out to queer elders, to maybe look in the phone books for a local LGBTQ center and tell them about what I was experiencing about having been sent to like a kind of a conversion therapy place where it was just meetings and then they, you get to go home. Um, there was talks about sending me, I believe the name of the place was called Horizon. It was on Long Island. There was talks about sending me there. And this is all before before acting on it. Because let's not wow. forget in the 90s, I mean, by the time you're trying to download a picture of a half-naked man, 47 minutes till you get to a nipple and TRL was on. I was like, I don't have the time. That nipple's enough. You know, so it was just like, I didn't even know what this was. I did not even know what gay sex could be. I did definitely thought that putting a, you know, a penis inside of an anus was like a joke. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was something that people were saying about gay people to diminish who they were. Yeah. about doing this awful act because I yeah. had never heard or seen or had conversations about how that was even physiologically possible. Yeah. And so for me, I thought it was this mystical feeling that only I had and kept trying to re-explain it. And I think when I was 16, I wish I had the internet. You know, it was in the school, but I, who's going to freaking Google gay stuff in your school library with everyone walking around you? Yeah. So I didn't really have exposure to it. And I wish I would have worked harder to find my voice then because I would have made wildly different choices as an adult. Wow. That's the advice for you back then. Do you have any advice for young guys today? Let yeah. me set this up for a second too. Like Don Kel Hafner, one of our queer elders says we have youth, adults, and elders. And like I'm 55, it's now time for me to be an elder. So I'm, I'm supposed to, you know, mentor you. And right. you, you are supposed to mentor the youth right behind you. Yeah, the you guys. just perfectly said that. I think that what I grew up with a lot of being the youngest person in rent, being a decade younger than my queer eye brothers, when I was younger, all I heard was, you just don't know, like you don't get it. And uh, that language wasn't really helpful for me to understand. It gives you um, nothing so to move towards. You have nothing to move towards. So I think it's really about one, making younger people feel included at events that might be somewhat over their head, have a reduced ticket price, for events like Equality California or GLAAD Awards, where there are people in tuxes or dressed up talking about social justice issues that these kids didn't even know there were platforms like this. You know, spending time inviting um, the youth to be engaged politically on their level. I think a lot of the influencers from music and television and stuff who are young are starting to understand that their voice matters. So I think it's not demeaning these people for not knowing or having a lack of education about queer things i think it's about encouraging encouraging them uh and supporting them and like you said you know like supporting the right choices that they're making and reiterating that you're there for them in a non-sexual way yeah. which is really important because i feel like a lot of the relationships that i started forming with mentors ultimately i felt there was underlying sexuality that made it unsafe for me mm -hmm. to continue to have them as a mentor 
So to, if yeah. you really are open to this, take the sexuality piece out. If your job is really to be a mentor to this person and you can sense that they're not interested in that way, drop that. Because the worst critique is being like the dirty old man who's trying to hit on the young kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's like such a cliche and people have a lot of fear that that's going to happen to them. And if it's something that they're interested in exploring, sure. But, you know, I think we need to be safe for people to come to yeah. who are younger than us, who want to explore, who are curious about what we've lived through and often make suggestions about now they can watch programming movies um, that won't look them they're not in black and white about where <laughs> we came from that are beautifully depicting stories and moments about their history that they should know about. That is beautiful. I do love you hit on all that uh, stuff that I think is so important. And it, it is difficult in the queer community, or we're talking about the gay men's community, that sexuality is always involved, right? This sexual nature. And I think that maybe we don't talk about it enough. I don't think we just don't, like, we're going to talk about this and this, and let's talk about sex. It's like, we're not going to, because we're in this relationship, it's just best that we don't have sex. And I want you to know, you're totally my type. I would totally go there. I don't want to cross any like boundary here. I don't want to like molest them with my words, but I do want to like acknowledge, yeah, that's there. We we yeah, have to deal with that's it. That's so appropriate. I'll tell you for my for my mental health. I was a part of two groups on Facebook um, that were really overtly sexual in nature um, that were started during the pandemic, and I had to remove myself because I started really feeling bad uh, uh, about myself about like my feelings about posting things about my body, um, about how ageist uh, one of them was. Um, and to be honest, I j it actually just started making me feel more anxious than it did as and it initially was as like exciting and like um, a way to kind of like relieve anxiety and stress. And in fact, I started feeling just wildly unwelcomed in those spaces. Oh, wow. And so you kind of have to like do what feels right for you. And when you talk about mentoring someone and stuff, we've all, I mean, I had a hard time with it because I recognize I look young-ish, but not to a 22-year-old. They can tell I'm a lot older than them. You know what yep. I mean? Oh, yeah. um, and, and so I think it's tricky because I always remember being the baby. And then when I'm around actual babies now, meaning 22-year-olds, I'm like, oh, we're not like the same. Like we are not yeah. contemporaries. And your experience is different than mine. And you now view me as substantially older than you. Yeah. As and, and we might have a like same music interests or like the same bars or like to play darts mm -hmm. or with the same, you know, and it's an but interesting it, it, thing. And yeah. I, you know, it's their yeah. biological job to challenge everything that we've built. <laughs> yeah. That's another yeah. thing I think people have a hard time dealing with. You know, it's like And I think what the messaging was never there for me coming up as to why those things were built to begin with. Like yeah. I never got the, a good form of understanding of understanding the why. And if you start letting people know why, I want them to take a sense of pride of it because ultimately it's going to be their job to keep these things in place. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's the only way that we, we, we need a way to pass our knowledge on rather than have every generation have to do it on their own. And they are creating, look, going to Queer Eye, we, we are a lost show for this new generation. They don't even know we existed. You know, because 17 years ago, we started shooting. So wow. for a 22-year-old, they were a toddler. They didn't see yeah. Queer Eye. So, you know, I can't be mad at that. But also, I don't want that moment and what that show meant to be erased because it was really important. And in fact, so many textbooks and museums have attributed that, mo that movement as part of the beginning of LGBTQ acceptance to the masses in a really kind of interesting, subversive way.
Yeah. However, you know, a 23 year old, I can't expect him to know what I did or what that meant or why that time was important of all those shows and how it panned out for different people. Well, but I do I want to touch to on, on one yeah. of my theories about Queer Eyes. <laughs> Step on yeah. you. But no, um, one of the things uh, these kids uh, maybe might need to know, one of the things that I think I'm making up and I want everybody to join me in my, what I'm making up about Queer Eye is, you know, I was on the bus seeing the Queer Eye uh, commercial in there and is like, feel all the feels. And then I was doing all this other work on myself, on my own feelings. And um, I'm doing it in this place where a lot of, you know, straight men are trying to like have a feeling other than anger and rage. And it occurred to me that Queer Eye is, you know, it's the modern shaman. It's the modern um, people. It's like, we're the magic ones who can help you feel, that can have you have a feeling well, you know about I really, your core I agree self. with that. And just so you know, our version was never intended to make you feel anything. It was literally supposed to be funny entertainment. And we were shocked when we do our little goodbye to the straight guy. He's got to make up. Everything looks pretty. Now we remind him what he's got to do. Producer steps in. Okay, John, the boys are going to leave. This is the last time you're ever going to see them. So if you want to say anything, and you, this is your chance to say your goodbyes. You're never going to see them again. And they would always be like, you know, guys are... <laughs> and they were crying. That's so beautiful. That we, we laughed because we thought oh, they were cute the first oh, time. Okay. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, he's serious. And then we wow. understood slowly the weight of what we were creating. And out of all five of my boys, I was the weepy one. I don't know if it's yeah. generational or whatever, but the new cast of I think Queer generation Eye, has something to do with it. I agree. And the new cast of Queer Eye you know, they watched our version. So they felt all the feels. Mm. And so did the new producers who produced this show. Many yeah. of them were fans. One of them is a friend mm. of mine. He was like, he always says, he's like, I came out because of you, all these things. So understanding that that was what they were shooting for, they're killing it. One of the shows that's new right now that I think is Queer Eye 2.0 is We Are Here, which is Eureka, Bob the Drag Queen, and Shangela for HBO. They go into small towns who are often bigoted and there's a, a very high level of bias. These are small towns. They come in full drag, handing out flyers for the drag show they're doing, and they make over three people in that town. Straight, gay, old, young, doesn't matter, just pillars of the community, and they put on a local drag show. And the conversations they have on this show really remind me of the way I speak and, the, and, and some of the really heavy conversations that we had that were really inclusive and acceptance. And when you say modern day shaman, I fully a hundred percent believe that's like the best way I could describe what, what we are here makes me feel like, because there's some spaces that they go into on these shows that I was like, I don't even know if I'd have the balls to go there or do that. Yeah. Well, you've done a lot of brave things. Um, well, you know, it's getting out there so young and taking on these insane roles, just the artistic intimidation of doing those roles uh, on top of the, the polit politics and everything else. Um, I mean, being out brown and queer in 2003 was innately political. You know? Yeah. When I was young, when I was freshly coming out, well, probably wasn't until I was in my 30s. But anyway, when we were finally making progress, it was always like two G.I. Joe guys like sitting next to each other, you know, talking about how we're two white guys in suits and we're a couple and we're just like everybody else. Well, that's and still in the ether though. There's a certain way that queer people want to push forward the acceptable kind of gay. And that what you're describing, this sort of GI Joe thing, a lot of my guys in my show, except from Carson, were really kind of straight passing. You wouldn't clock them first off as being gay. 
Carson, yes, but it was almost like in that 70s game show style, like Liberace way where we just accept it and love it. And then you had me. And it was really, really tricky because you could sexualize me. I was young, somewhat attractive. You could imagine some kind of sexuality with me. And, you know, that was very, very hard for people to embrace, never mind celebrate. And we come to a place now where people who are other and don't fit the G.I. Joe model of, you know, what people look like, even, you know, in, uh, for, for women, you know, you know, having women that, that present differently than the societal norm of, of a modern day housewife. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we close up, I want to um, ask you a question about, you know, what do you do to like invest in yourself, you know, your own personal dignity? I think it's, you generally, I will confirm book by things that scare me. So I will attend events that are outside of my comfort zone, Mm. um, put myself in spaces where I'm meeting new people. Um, I'll buy myself things like I bought this camera with the full intention to be doing a lot more content online. And I probably made four videos with this that are not related to content. But (laughs) the idea was to basically kind of put myself uh, to equip myself with all the, the physical tools and actual physical spaces that really are about just self-growth um, and challenging myself to not just see life a different way, but also to be able to take the steps to to evolve. You know, I think we're constantly evolving and growing. And I don't yeah. like the feeling of feeling stagnant. You enjoy, enjoy a stretch. That's something that we do in men's work, we call it. So, Got it. You know, but it's usually it's like, this is the person I want to be. And to stretch me towards that, I'm going to do this challenging thing where I embody that. Got it. Yeah. So I think that's important to know what what's going on to consciously invest in yourself and you're investing in your creativity. Where do you get your support? Who's your chosen family? Yeah, so that's tricky. So thankfully, I, I, I live with my roommate um, who moved here about 10 years ago. And uh, we just instantly bonded. We're like brothers. And so that's a, that's a great support system. My best friend, Adam, wandered into an open mic I was hosting in West Hollywood. And he looked like Prince Charming. So I kept calling him Prince Charming. It turns out he lived four doors down from me. So then we just always spent basically every night together watching TV and you know having a glass of wine and downloading each other on our days. Uh, I have another friend, Jarek, who's sort of the, the, we call him the unofficial mayor of West Hollywood. And, you know, just someone who's really kind of seen these incredible huge highs and huge lows in my career. And it's interesting because he's such a magnet for everyone. When people come in with a, oh my God, that's Jay Rodriguez, and they get all fanny. It's nice to have someone like him around who knows the real me and Mm -hmm, and, and how simple that I am at my core, that I, you know, don't live this extravagant life and that I'm never going to treat anyone with disrespect or whatever. And, And then my friend James who moved here from Seattle, came from similar religious upbringing. Um, he lives one block away and we, we talk all the time. Uh, another person I have, David Hernandez from American Idol. He was uh, on the show probably in 2003. And, you know, he was in the closet and it took him a while to come out, but we're still performing at Prides. We were considered virtually interchangeable for a while, visually. And, uh, and we bonded over just music and just being, you know, out and, and freelance performers. And, and then the last person who's really my go-to for anything emotional is a guy named Dr. Chris Donahue. He hosts the official Love Line on Channel Q now, but uh, I, we dated for three years. And um, I helped pitch and get his show sold of him doing therapeutic work. It was uh, two, two seasons of a show called Bad Sex. I saw some of that. Um, 
Yeah, that loves it. So he was a host on that. And he's kind of, we are each other's kind of check-in for not just professional, but emotional. We really trust each other with therapeutic advice, which is kind of saying a lot because, you know, I went to the school of hard knock, hard knock life and, uh, and street smarts, and he's, you know, got a double PhD and where some instances call for some kind of book smarts. There are others that, that really need someone who's got a real broad view on the world and can specifically kind of cut through your own bullshit because they know you that well. Yeah. Um, so I've met so, him. So I can see that you would, you would be good for each other. Um, yeah. yeah uh, especially, especially as friends. Well, that's, that's awesome. That's quite the, uh, the, the, that's the roll call of the tribe, I think, which is interesting because we don't really, we're never all together except for like my birthday party or in small packs. There's some crossover like David and James are really good friends, but it's not like sex in the city where we all do everything together. Right. Well, it sounds like they have different, um, capabilities and, and yeah and they don't socialize in the same spaces they don't align visually um you know they're not all the same skin color or body type and represent different kind of outlets of uh or expressions here in the queer community well well thank you yeah jay this has been amazing you are all the stuff i projected on you before it's still true your realness comes through well and, thanks um and I think we need that. That's what gay men need to, you know, if we're going to get into heart-centered connection, we need to, to, to see the real person. And I appreciate that you, you're willing to put that out there. So thank you for coming on Girly Man and showing, showing us who you are. Anytime. And as you know, I have a huge affinity for the desert. I love Palm Springs. I, I get out there to do my cabaret show often, and I, I can't wait to, to get back there. But till then, I'd like you to put the APB out for a boyfriend, husband, life partner, second boyfriend, although I'd really like to be the first boyfriend because I feel like they get the better stuff. But I'm fine. <laughs> I'm thinking of something really polyamorous, like a, you know, a three-way marriage situation. It worked really well for friends of mine who used to own LESC. Now they live in, in uh, Palm Springs. So at this point at 41, all I'm asking for is someone to be kind, funny, handsome, but that is a very broad word for me. Um, but I have a feeling you have your finger on the pulse. So I'd love for you to play Yenta or matchmaker, if you will. I, I, I will do my best. I will okay. I'll keep my eye open for, um, unfortunately, right now I'm only seeing three people on a regular basis <laughs> Got it. in my COVID coven. That's <laughs> but, <laughs> But, I get um, it. Yeah. We're getting it out there in the pod sphere. I, I, I'll, I'll put it out in chats. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, it was great chatting with you. Thanks for having me on and much continued success with this podcast. Thanks. You too, Jay. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the show, my friend. Now stay connected by subscribing to Girly Men Podcast and sharing with your friends on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts can be found. Visit the webpage at girlymen.com, sign up for the newsletter, and find more details about each episode. Let's make this a conversation, because I'd really like to hear from you. Join us on Facebook at Girlymen. Submit your questions, suggest topics, or just chat with your brothers. Want to add your own two cents? Use the voice memo feature on your smartphone. Ask a question or say anything. We just might play it on the podcast. Email the file to mike at girlymen.com. Until next time.